Father, we ask now that you would bless the preaching of your word. We pray that your word would not go forth in word only, but that your word would go forth in power. Power to sanctify, power to convict, power to regenerate, power to assure, power to grow faith. God, we pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to work through your word now for your glory and the glory of your Son and the glory of your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, Please open your Bibles to Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10. Uh, This Lord's Day, we are stepping away from our series in the book of Matthew. I want to spend this week and also next Lord's Day, which is Christmas Eve, looking at passages of Scripture that especially pertain to the birth and coming of Jesus. Today, Hebrews 10. This is not typically a passage thought of in connection with Christmas, but it does teach us something amazing about Jesus coming into the world. Hebrews 10 tells us what Christ said when He came into the world. And that is an incredible thought. You think about how special that is to know. We know from the Gospels what angels said when He came. We know what Mary said when He came to be born. We know what shepherds said when He came. We know what wise men said when He was born into the world. But do you know what the Son of God Himself said when He was coming into the world to become a man? Do you know what God the Father said when He sent His Son into the world at the Incarnation? Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that. Hebrews 1.6 says that when God the Father brings the firstborn into the world, He said, let all God's angels worship Him. When Christ came from heaven and, and became a helpless human baby, the Father ordered every angel to worship Him. He commanded the hosts of heaven, worship my Son as He goes to be born as dust, as a human being. So so when He came to the world, the Father said something about the Son in heaven, but also the Son said something to the Father within the Godhead. And Hebrews 10 tells us what that was, beginning in verse 5. Look at how verse 5 begins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said... Now, before we dive more deeply into these words that Christ declared at His incarnation, we need to deal seriously first with the first word of that verse. Verse 5 begins with the word, consequently, or therefore. So, Jesus said what He did at the incarnation as a consequence of or because of what the previous verses explain. The the verses right before verse 5 tell us what prompted Jesus to say what He did as He went to take on human flesh at Christmas. So that's where we need to begin. Back up then to verse 1 and see with me what prompted 
Christ's incarnation declaration? What prompted Christ's incarnation declaration? Now, verse 1 is going to start speaking about the law. That's the law that God gave to Israel in the Old Testament through Moses. So, so verse 1 says, since the law has but a shadow of the good things that are to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So the, the law God gave in the Old Testament was full of, this verse says, shadows, meaning those laws foreshadowed the good things that would come later. And this verse especially has in mind the sacrifices that the law called for, sacrifices of bulls and goats and lambs and other things that the people had to bring when they drew near to God at His temple, and God told them to bring these sacrifices because of their sin against Him. And, and because of the guilt that those sins incurred. And these animal sacrifices were to be offered to God seeking atonement or covering for their sins, forgiveness for their sins, and the removal of guilt. Or, as the end of verse 1 put it, those who drew near to God were seeking by the sacrifices to be made perfect to become perfectly qualified to be in God's presence, to, to have sin and guilt resolved completely, perfectly. But this verse is telling us those animal sacrifices God commanded in the law never, never actually accomplished that in and of themselves. They never did. They never could. Well, then why did God command them? This verse explained, those sacrifices were shadows of something good coming later, which in reality would make perfect those who drew near. And in this passage, God offers proof that those sacrifices never did or could make His people perfect. And the proof He offers is the fact that they kept having to be offered. You think about it, if, if those sacrifices did bring about perfect reconciliation with God, then why would they continue to have to be offered year after year? That reasoning comes out a bit in verse 1, the way verse 1 spoke of the same sacrifices that are offered continually every year. And, and that reasoning is even more explicit in verse 2. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? If, if those sacrifices in the law that were commanded, if they ever made the people clean once for all like they needed... They would have been able to, to quit offering them, but they couldn't cease. They, they would have to do the whole Day of Atonement ritual again the next year because they weren't cleansed by those sacrifices, and they knew it. 
the verse said they still had consciousness of sin. They, they were ever aware that these sacrifices did not take away their sin and guilt in a full and final way. That they would offer those sacrifices thinking, well, this is not the final solution because we're going to be here again next year doing the same thing. All those sacrifices, the, the, the repeat nature of them, it, it reinforced this consciousness of sin. And that's what verse 3 says. Look at verse 3. In these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. The sacrifices would remind them, would make them conscious all over again that their guilt before God was not fully dealt with. The repetition revealed the inadequacy of those offerings. And, and they, they reinforced then this, this deep consciousness that, that our sin problem still needed to be addressed. You know, there, there are many people still today who live under a continuing consciousness of sin. Now, in the sense that this verse says, that that's more than just an ongoing awareness of sin, like, like we all should have. I mean, Jesus taught His disciples to pray regularly, even daily, that God would forgive us for our trespasses. So, so there, there is a continuing awareness of sin that we bring before God in prayer, even as Christians trusting in Christ. But, but what these verses are describing is an ongoing consciousness of sins that haven't been dealt with. A, a lingering sense of unresolved guilt before God. And, and people live with, with that today many times be, because they're trying to offer to God the same sacrifices that can never take away sin. That, that can never fully resolve their guilt before God. That can never cleanse their conscience once for all. People aren't bringing sacrifices like, you know, slaughtered goats, but, but, but they might bring God uh, impotent sacrifices like promising God I'll do better next time. That, that can never make atonement for sins. Or, or make perfect those who draw near. Or, or others are caught in, in some just cycle of, of religious works that never ends. And they keep having to, to try to work the same system over and over to try and get more cleansing from sin. But, but there's never any finality for the cleansing that is offered. There is never this sense of it is finished. It is done once for all, I am forgiven and clean and righteous before God. And, and in any system like this, the, the continual nature of the works and the sacrifices and the system should be an indicator that those things will never get the job done. That those paths will never lead to, to full cleansing and atonement and perfection. It's impossible. Just like the sacrifices offered under the Old Testament law, continually offered without ceasing because it was impossible for them to truly address the problem of our sin and guilt. And that's what verse 4 said. It is impossible 
for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That blood had no saving power. And listen, that is what Christ saw and considered that prompted him to say what he did at the incarnation. He saw it was impossible for us to bring any sacrifice to God that would take away our sins. The Son of God considered how the people of God were, were repeatedly reminded of their guilt. And he, he saw the anguish of soul that comes from that, that kind of consciousness of sin that hasn't been dealt with, the, the lack of assurance, the fear of judgment that follows. He saw people drawing near to God with sacrifices that were only shadows. And because Jesus saw that, he said to his Father, in effect, here I am, send me. Because I see that it is impossible for them to have their sins taken away in any other way. Now, consider what this says about the heart and the character of Jesus. When you, when you think about what prompted his, his resolution, his pledge to the Father when he came into the world, he was moved by the helplessness of those he came to save. Even before he took on flesh and suffered in the midst of men, even when he was exalted in heaven, his heart was full of compassion for sinners. It mattered to him that we were helpless. And so it still does, even after, even now, as he is again exalted in heaven. He is moved by the helplessness of his people. He is a sympathetic and compassionate high priest. And, and this prompted his incarnation declaration and now I want us to look at what the actual words of that were. So what was Christ's incarnation declaration? What was Christ's incarnation declaration? It starts in verse 5, and it reads, Consequently, therefore, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. That's what the Son said to the Father when He came to take on our flesh and blood. That's what He said because He considered how it was impossible for the Old Testament sacrifices to take away our sins. These words are from Psalm 40. The Son spoke the words of Psalm 40 to the Father when He humbled Himself to be born in the likeness of men. Now, if you look at Psalm 40, you'll notice first that, that it was first David's prayer. In what sense could David 
pray and say that God didn't desire sacrifices and offerings from him. Or, or that God wouldn't be pleased if David brought burnt offerings and sin offerings. David lived under the law. David would be sinning against God in those days if he didn't bring burnt offerings and sin offerings and sacrifices. Yes, yes, but there was something David knew God wanted even more from his covenant people than their sacrifices. Something that God said was better and that was their obedience. David knew God had said to his predecessor, to King Saul in, in 1 Samuel 15, 22, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen is better than the fat of rams. To listen to God, to hear His voice and do what He says, that, that is better than bringing an offering of, of ram fat. And that's what David's indicating in these verses of Psalm 40. He, he knew that the Lord wanted, in, instead of the burnt offerings, or perhaps we should say instead of just the burnt offerings, that he wanted his obedience. And so, as we read in verse 7 of Hebrews 10, I've come to do your will. I, I'm not just going to offer you animals instead of myself. I'm going to offer you myself, my obedience. I give my life to living according to your will. Well, this principle still, still applies today. If, if your heart is not doesn't have a desire to obey God and do His will, then, then He's not pleased by any offering of worship you might bring Him. Songs of praise or, or gifts to the needy or to the church. He wants our hearts to be, to be set on His will. Now, the Hebrew of these verses from Psalm 40 actually says, instead of this line, a body you've prepared for me, it says, ears you have dug for me. As you've, you've opened my ears to your words. You've made me want to listen to what you tell me. That, that line, it's a declaration of desired obedience. Well, so where did the line, a body you have prepared for me, come from? Well, a heart of obedience will always be expressed by what one does with their body. Sin and righteousness is a matter of the heart, but, but it's always expressed in what we do with our bodies. So the line in verse 5, a body you've prepared for me, that, that actually, that comes from the old Greek translation of this part of Psalm 40 from the Septuagint, and, and it's drawing out this idea from the psalm that, that these words profess a desire for complete obedience, to, to obey with, with all one is and has, to give all of oneself, all one's body consecrated to obeying the will of the Lord. Now, one of the great prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament, some, some of the greatest are, are the four servant songs in the prophecy of Isaiah. 
And the third servant song in Isaiah 40 makes use of, of these words, uh, the, at least this theology from Psalm 40 about the, having an open ear. And right after the Messiah who would come in the prophecy of Isaiah talks about having an open ear, then immediately he talks about how he would offer his body to the Lord to, to obey the Father's will for him. So this is Isaiah verse 5. You hear that this Psalm 40-like language, the Messiah servant of the Lord says in Isaiah 50 verse 5, the Lord has opened my ear. I was not rebellious. I turned not backwards. So I'll listen and obey. Now next, verse 6, the Messiah said, I gave my back to those who would strike. I gave my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And Jesus would endure all of those things in the body that the Father prepared for Him and that He assumed in the incarnation. And so at the incarnation, Christ used these words from Psalm 40 to declare His resolve to willingly go through all of that and more. When He he entered the world, He said, A body you have prepared for me, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now, that last line there, uh, verse 7 in Hebrews 10, which is also verse 7 in Psalm 50, as it, Psalm 40, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. I, I think that line shows us David knew when he wrote Psalm 40 that in these verses, he, he, was, he was punching above his weight. He knew these words were not ultimately referring to his own obedience and calling. David doing the will of God was not foretold by the prophets in the scrolls of the Bible. But the Messiah's obedience to the will of God, that was written in the scroll of the book. David writes these words in Psalm 40, knowing that he is writing and speaking words that Christ would speak and fulfill. Now, yes, David is also expressing his own desire and obey. He's, and he's praising God for how the Lord has opened his ears and turned his heart to delight in doing the will of God. But, but he's expressing his desire to obey with words that go above and beyond his own obedience and calling. Words that are about the great descendant that God promised to David, the Christ And so when Christ enters the world, he says these spirit-inspired words from Psalm 40, which were about him all along. They were his words, and they became his incarnation declaration. Father, I have come to the world to do your will. I will not withhold myself or withhold my body or any part of it from any obedience that you desire, Father. This is the pledge the Son made when He came into the world. And He knew what that would require. From the beginning of the mission, from Christmas, He knew the Father did not will for Him to come and sacrifice bulls and goats that can never take away the sins of His people. Instead, the Father prepared a body for Him. That would be the sacrifice that would 
please the Father for the Son to offer, this body. The Father's will was for the Son to offer Himself in a human nature, in death. So when you think about the incarnation, when you think about what happened at Christmas, when you think about Jesus being conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, you should incorporate these verses from Hebrews into your understanding of that event to help you understand what really was happening there. When the Holy Spirit came upon the Virgin Mary and and the power of the Most High overshadowed her, what was happening was... By the Spirit, the Father was preparing for the Son a body. Preparing for the Son a body in her womb that the Son could take as His own, grow up in, and then sacrifice. At the incarnation, the Father started to form for His Son a back that could be whipped and a face that could be spit on, and cheeks that could be slapped, and hands that could be pierced, and a side that could be stabbed, and a body that could hang on a tree, and and blood that could spill down a cross. And the son said, Yes, Father, I go to do all your will with this body. I will take this flesh and blood. The same flesh and blood that is shared by all those people that you have given me to save. Because I see that it is impossible for them to be saved any other way. And so the father said about the son, Oh, my angels, worship him. That's what happened at the incarnation from the perspective of the Godhead. When Christ entered the virgin's womb, he he said within the Trinity, I've come to do your will, Father, to, to obey in every way. Christ said the same thing to his Father when his time on earth was nearly finished also. When, when he was about to suffer and die as a man, then again the Son said, in Gethsemane, Father, your will be done. Since, again, he saw it was not possible for us to be saved any other way. And then the son became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That was the father's will. It was the father's will. So, so part of the glory of Christmas, then, is not, is not just the son's humility, or the Son's compassion for us, the Son's love for us to come and save us like He did. It is also about the love of the Father whose will it was for the Son to come and do this. The Son came into the world and took on our flesh to suffer for us because that's what His Father willed. That is what the Father desired. That is what would please the Father. You need to see in the manger the great Love of God the Father and the Father's deep desire to save sinners. There is no hesitancy in the heart of God the Father to save sinners. 
to say, I've been saved by the sacrifice of God the Son, is also to say, I have been saved by the loving will of God the Father. Christ came to do His will. The following verses of Hebrews 10, we find out what resulted from Christ's incarnation declaration. It's our third and final point, what resulted from Christ's incarnation declaration. Now, verses 8 and 9 repeat most of the words of His declaration and then explain uh, briefly one result of of Jesus doing this. Look at verse 8. When Christ said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. So when Jesus said these words from Psalm 40, he was indicating the Father's will for him would would bring an end to all the sacrifices and offerings that were offered according to the law. When, When he carried out the Father's will in the world, that would do away with those sacrifices. I think here again we have further proof that these words of Psalm 40 could could never fully have been David's words about himself. David could never have thought that his own self-offering of obedience would bring it into the whole sacrificial system of the law. But Jesus knew, as it had been written of him in the scroll of the book, Jesus knew he was the reality that all those shadow sacrifices were foreshadowing. He was the good thing to come, the offering that would make us clean, the sacrifice that would make perfect those who draw near, those who draw near to God through Him. And verse 10 connects these dots then and explains why Christ doing the will of the Father would nullify any need for any other sin offering, commanded in the law or otherwise. Look at verse 10 now. And by that will... We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We've been sanctified. Sanctify in this verse means made holy before God or or qualified to be in God's holy presence. Christ offering His body set us apart to belong to God set us in the realm of what is holy, in in the kingdom of what is holy that's devoted to God and cleansed from the defilements of sin. And this holy status is not something that can ever be lost by a true Christian. Christ's offering makes us sanctified and set apart for God, the verse said, once for all. Once for all, in verse 10, that stands in sharp contrast to the phrases we read at the beginning of this passage that describe those uh, shadow sacrifices of the law. Once for all is the opposite of continually, never ceasing, year after year. Remember that the reason why those sacrifices were, were 
offered without ceasing repeatedly is because those who offered were not cleansed by them. It was impossible for those bloody sacrifices to take away our sins. But, but the human nature, the human blood that became Christ at the incarnation, that, that would be a better sacrifice than bulls and goats and, and all of humanity put together even. His blood poured out in death could take away sins. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And His body and blood was a once-for-all offering. That those old sacrifices were done away with because those who trust in Christ's offerings are sanctified once for all. And once for all means not just there's no more need for further other sacrifices, but also that there's no more need for a further sacrifice from Christ or of Christ. If His offering is cleansed, has made perfect, has taken away sins, then there's no reason for Him to be sacrificed again in any sense. But, but that is what some teach. The, the Roman Catholic Church says that, that there is a, a, a true sacrifice of Christ every day, again and again, in every Mass. But, but this belittles the achievement of the cross. The Bible says what happened on the cross was once for all. It is finished. And, and if you look at the next verses in Hebrews 10, you'll see the Holy Spirit continues to emphasize this truth. Look at, look at verse 11 now. Every priest that is under the Mosaic law Every priest stands, still working, stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God and waiting from that time until all his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, verse 14, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And, and so look down at verse 18, explains, where there is forgiveness of sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. That is, any offering for sin that's required still. This phrase, once for all, it is one of the most wonderful phrases in all of the Word of God. Once for all. It's come up again before this in Hebrews. Hebrews 9, 12 says, Christ entered once for all into the holy places. Not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood and thus securing an eternal redemption. Not a redemption that would expire when this time next year came around again. Then, then Hebrews 9, 24 says, Christ entered into heaven to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, not to offer Himself repeatedly, like the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not His own, for then Christ would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, Christ appeared, here it comes, 
once for all at the end of the ages to bear the sins of many. And so He will appear a second time not to deal with sin. That is done once for all. He will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Friends, He has dealt with our guilt. He has dealt with our sins once for all. That was the will of the Father for the Son, and the Son carried it through. You want a phrase in Scripture to to plant your faith on that will deeply encourage you, use this phrase, once for all. Now, I want you to see something else in this passage. Uh, This explains further what Christ, in His incarnation, would come and do, according to the will of the Father. It's it's the verses that, that I just hopped over, verses 15 through 17. And here we're told more of what resulted from the obedient sacrifice of the incarnate Son of God. And and I want you to see these especially because these verses describe the results in terms that tie in with the words of Christ's incarnation declaration and, and that tie in also with what prompted Him to say those words. So look at verse 15 with me now in, in this further describes what the offering of Jesus purchased for us. Verse 15, the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts, I will write them on their minds, then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So these words are from Jeremiah 31, where God promised one day He would would bring His people into a relationship with Himself that was based on a new covenant. And some of God's promises that He would make to His people that, that would bind Him to the people who were in that new covenant relationship with Him were promises we just read. I will put my laws on their hearts, and I will remember their sins no more. Now, that first part, verse 16, I will put my laws on their hearts. That that means I will give them a heart that wants to do my will. I will give them a heart that wants to listen to me and to obey me. And that meshes with the words of Psalm 40, that stand behind Christ's incarnation declaration. If we read the full verses from which Christ spoke in Psalm 40, when He came into the world, we would find that that they say this. This is Psalm 40, 7 and 8. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. That's the text that that informed the words Jesus spoke to the Father when He was coming into the world. Well, now that we read, now we read in Hebrews that that when Jesus 
became a man to do the will of God, and, and the law of God was in his human heart that the Father formed for him, that, that the obedience that Jesus offered as a man would result in the law of God being put on our hearts. You see that connection? His work was going to give us a heart that wanted to do God's will like He had when He dwelt in flesh and blood like ours. He he came to do God's will so that we could have a new heart that would make us say, now I will go and do God's will. One result of Christ's mission in the world, His death and resurrection... Was, was to make the words that he declared at the incarnation something that we could truly pray after him from the heart. Father, your will be done. To have that heart like his is a gift that he purchased for us by his blood. And then verse 17, here's another result of his incarnation work that This answers one of the problems that that the passage we've looked at described earlier, the the problem that prompted his incarnation declaration. (laughs) So the offering Christ made in our flesh, this, this resulted in the promise of God coming to pass. I will remember your sins no more. Well, that should remind us of the problem we read about in verse 3. That in the repeat sacrifices of the law, there was a reminder of sins year after year. But Jesus came to, Jesus saw that and he came to the world so that by his sacrifice, there would be no reminder of our sins before the judgment seat of God. No reminder of sins in the way that God related to us and blessed us in Christ with eternal life. That the blood of Jesus takes away our sins so they won't be remembered if we are His eternally against us. So, so what that means is in Christ, we, we don't have to live under that awful consciousness of sin that verse 2 described. Consciousness of unresolved guilt. Of sins not fully forgiven or addressed or dealt with or atoned for. Now, now, of course, there, there are many today who, who don't live under any crushing consciousness of sin like that, but, but they're actually worse off than if they did. That They don't have any, any kind of bothersome consciousness of sin be, because they have a, a hardened conscience and a desensitized conscience and a seared conscience. But those who trust in the offering of the incarnate Christ and are saved by it. They they are freed from a consciousness of of unresolved guilt because they have a cleansed conscience. And and that comes from faith that Jesus has taken away their sins. So Hebrews 9.14 says, the blood of Christ purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And Hebrews 10.22 says, By the blood of Christ, our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. 
He, he saved us once for all. And part of that salvation is he wants us to live in the joyful assurance that that is true. And so you must press your faith deeper still into the promises of the gospel until that is true of your experience. You can live that way in, in, for the glory of God with that kind of joyful assurance. Well, I hope that this week, um, in, in the days leading up to Christmas, that, that you will think often about the incarnation of the Son of God, and I hope that when you do, you will remember these verses. And that when you think of the incarnation of Christ even after Christmas, and I hope you do, that you will remember these verses and that it will make you love Christ more. Remember this, that when Jesus came into the world, He said to His Father, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Behold, I have come to do your will. And then remember that the Holy Spirit said, by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Father, thank you for this once for all salvation that we have through the offering of the body of Jesus. Thank you for the freedom, the forgiveness it gives us, but also the freedom that it gives us from a dirty conscience that that brings a, a crushing reminder of sin, that it's unresolved and undealt with, and the fearful expectation of judgment that, that's associated with that. Father, thank you for the salvation you give us in Christ and the experience of that salvation that we get to enjoy in this life, uh, the peace that comes with it, the joy that comes with it, the desire to do your will that comes with it, God, I pray that you would help us to experience all of those joys of this salvation we have in Christ more for the glory of his name. We pray this all in his name. Amen.